There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. It lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Dimensions, a Twilight Zone podcast. This episode, we will be discussing episode two, season one of the original Twilight Zone series titled One for the Angels. It was written by Rod Serling and directed by Robert Parrish, and this would be the first of three directed episodes by Robert Parrish. The other two being A Stop at Willoughby and The Mighty Casey. Music was by Bernard Herman. The cast was Ed Wynn, Murray Hamilton, and Dana Dillaway. It was produced by Buck Houghton, and you can watch it on Netflix, Hulu, Prime, or if you own the DVDs or Blu-rays, you can watch it there as well. The original air date of this episode was October 9th, 1959. Now, before we get started with the episode, I will warn you that there are spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen the episode, stop the podcast, go watch the episode, come back, and hit play again. Also, if you would, please give a like and subscribe to this so that I can uh, at least know that what I'm doing, somebody's listening to. Make me feel better. Also, another side note, I would like to correct an uh, error that I made on last week's episode. Um... The movie Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price, was not made in the 50s. It was actually made in 1964. So I apologize for my error in telling you what date that movie was made. Uh, Still, go watch it. It's a fantastic film. And now that the housekeeping is done, so to speak, let us move on with Season 1, Episode 2, Twilight Zone, titled One for the Angels, with opening narration... By Will Lastly. Street scene. Summer. The present. Man on a sidewalk named Lou Bookman. Age 60-ish. Occupation. Pitchman. Lou Bookman. A fixture of the summer. A rather minor component to a hot July. A nondescript, commonplace little man whose life is a treadmill built out of sidewalks. In just a moment, Lou Bookman will have something to occupy his time, which transcends both success and failure. He'll have to concern himself with survival, because as of three o'clock this hot July, Mr. Bookman will be stalked by Mr. Death. Now, as it says in the narration, Lou Bookman is a fixture of the July summer sidewalk in that he is a salesman, basically a door-to-door salesman. And what the salesman would do is, during the summer, when there was increased foot traffic on the sidewalks, they would quit going door-to-door and just set up on the sidewalk and basically just pedal out in the street because it was just too hot to lug the equipment door-to-door during that time of year. Now, one thing that always bothered me was when Rod Serling introduced death, he looked straight at the camera. And uh, for some reason, that always bothered me as a fan of the show. It, you know, it's breaking the fourth wall. It really, to me, it just, it, 
it just wasn't necessary. Also, as a side note, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Bill, where was Rod Serling? Normally he's on the TV narrating it to us. Well, not so in the first uh, season, kiddies. Not so. He, uh, he didn't actually get on camera until the start of the second season going forward. But I digress. So back to Bookman. So you got Bookman on the corner in the sidewalk, sweating like a crackhead, trying to sell people ties and, and string and socks and robots and whatever, you know, he could fit in his little trunk. Also, uh, the robots that he sells. Um, I don't know if this was actually intentionally meant to be somewhat of an Easter egg, but if you look at the robots and then you compare them to the season five episode of Uncle Simon, and I won't spoil that, but you'll see the robot at the end. Um, to me, they look oddly similar, which makes me think that, that maybe the main character in that episode, Uncle Simon, actually owned a company that produced the robots that Lou Bookman was selling on the sidewalk. So Bookman's on the street and Death is on the street. Bookman kind of notices Death, but doesn't really think much of it. And he decides to go back to his house since he's done selling for the day. It's too hot to do anything, so he's just going to go home. And it's in this little scene from when he leaves the sidewalk to when he goes back to the house that he lives in, the boarding house. He sees all the children, and the children follow him like he's the Pied Piper. Because apparently he's very good with kids. Kids love him. You know, they see him like a grandfather figure or something of that nature. And they love him. And so he stops and he gives two of the children, one of them Maggie, the little girl, and a boy, uh, robots as, you know, for free just to play with. And he tells the kids that, you know, the Lou Bookman ice cream social hour occurs after supper, which, you know, being a kid and watched the show, I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. You eat supper and then you get ice cream, you know. Uh, but now as I get older, I'm like, that's, that's, that's a little creepy, you know, um, people letting their children, you know, hang out with a really old bachelor, you know, and feed them ice cream. That seems a little suspicious to me, not trying to cast any dispersions on the good character of Mr. Lou Bookman. But as I got older, that always, uh, kind of seemed a little, you know, weird to me, but it was a different time. You know, people were a little more trusting back then. And uh, it's a TV show from the 50s, so they're not really going to show pedophiles on there. It's not like we're watching Law & Order SVU. We're watching a sci-fi and horror anthology series from the 50s. So I don't think Detective Benson from SVU is going to be breaking down Lou Bookman's door anytime soon. So we've established Bookman seems like a nice guy. The kids love him. And he's just that old grandpa kind of character. So he heads back to his room. And when he walks in... He is greeted by Death, played by Murray Hamilton. Now, we'll talk a little bit more later about Murray Hamilton. Uh, this was his only Twilight Zone appearance, but he appeared in many other things, and we will discuss those in a little bit more detail further on in this episode. So Death starts asking Bookman all these questions about, was this your mother's name? Was this your father's name? They were born here, is that correct? Basically verifying that he is who he was there to see. And, of course, Bookman answering the questions, not knowing, you know, what's going on until Death 
basically, you know, kind of says, well, your time of departure is midnight. Now, Maggie comes in at this point, the little girl from before, with the toy robot that Lou gave her, said it wasn't working right, and could he fix it? And so he starts to fix it, and he talks about the man in the room, and, you know, oh, he should introduce her, and all this. And it goes into that old trope of, you know, there's an invisible person in the room, but the main character doesn't know that that person is invisible to everyone else but them sort of thing that by now has been used and used and used and used in so many things that when you go back and look at it on a show such as like the Twilight Zone, you don't realize that that was a relatively new at this point, not beaten into the ground like it has been, you know, over the years. So, of course, Maggie can't see death and there's this whole exchange between death and Bookman where death is saying, well, you know, she can't see me. And he doesn't believe him. And it goes on like that for a minute or two where they have the exchange back and forth. And the little girl leaves after the robot is fixed. And this is where it finally sinks in to Bookman that this guy is death and he's here to take him away. And Lou says, you know, well, you know, I'm not ready to go. And death says, well, you know, you people think you can live forever, but you can't. You know, everybody has to go at some point or another. And... Lou says, well, isn't there any sort of, you know, special circumstances? And Death says, well, there are three. One being, if you had any family that would be severely affected by your leaving this earth, you know, they would be destitute or homeless or, you know, in some way severely hurt by you leaving. The second one being is if you were a person on the verge of a huge scientific discovery or something that would benefit mankind greatly you would get an extension and the third one being if you have some sort of unfinished business so to speak something that has to be done before you can depart the earth so bookman says oh well i have unfinished business and he starts to make you know different excuses of oh i've never ridden a helicopter or i've never seen this or i've never done that and of course death waves every one of them off, you know, like, well, that's not good enough. You know, it has to be something a little more substantial than that. So he makes one final plea, and he says that he wants to make a pitch that no one could, you know, turn him down on anything he was selling. Basically to be the best pitch man, at least for, you know, one pitch in the world, so that he could finally be the best at something, and and the children and everyone in the neighborhood would be proud of him. And, but he calls it, you know, one for the angels. So death at this point, kind of persuaded by Bookman, kind of, you know, was sold, you know, a bill of goods of, hey, let me live until I can make this pitch and then, you know, you can take me, I'll gladly go with you. To which death, you know, somewhat reluctantly, but agrees to. And so he asks, you know, Bookman, he says, when are you going to make this pitch? You know, is it today? Is it tomorrow? And and then Bookman says, well, you know, it might not be this year. It might be next year or a couple of years from now. He says, you never really know when the big pitch is going to come along. So Death catches on that Bookman's trying to play him. And, uh, of course, obviously that doesn't work. Which brings us into the second nowadays overly used trope of stories of this nature with an invisible person. Where the main character tries to outrun or evade the invisible person, which of course never works because the invisible person is obviously, you know, everywhere and can, you know, bend the laws of physics. 
So in the second act, so to speak, of this episode is where we get into where Death sort of takes his, I wouldn't say revenge necessarily, um, but he tells Bookman that, well, since you're not going to go, I have to choose an alternative. And the alternative he chose was the little girl, Maggie, because right at that time you hear tires screech and people scream and down on the street the little girl got hit by a car. So Lou rushes down there to see her, and he talks to her, and she's, you know, very weak or whatnot, and she says, hey, who's that guy standing back there talking to death? And Bookman says, oh, you can see him? And she says, yeah, yeah, Lou, I can. Who is that? So, of course, Bookman tries to bargain his way back to being the guy that gets taken, but death ignores him and just goes on. So now we're at nighttime, and... No one knows if Maggie's going to live or not. The doctor says, you know, they'll know by midnight whether she'll pull through or not. And Bookman's sitting on the stairs out front. Death comes walking up. They discuss the time being about a quarter to midnight and how Death has to be in her room precisely at midnight to take her. So Bookman does the last thing he knows to do. He starts his pitch, his big pitch, the one for the angels, in order to delay death long enough that he doesn't make it into the room by midnight so he starts his pitch and it's a grand pitch he doesn't start to win over death and then all of a sudden it just starts rolling bookman starts winning him over selling him the entire stock of everything he has in his trunk and the time ticks by and the time ticks by and then bookman says that he's got one last piece de resistance item for sale which is one obedient manservant to take with him wherever he goes. So Bookman started selling shirts and ties and socks, and he is now trying to basically sell himself to death in order to once again persuade him to take him instead of Maggie, the little girl. Right as Bookman is winding up his pitch, the clock strikes midnight, and death was late for his appointment, meaning he couldn't take the little girl. And the doctor shows back up and says, well, I think she'll make a full recovery. Everything should be fine. Just get plenty of rest, so on and so forth. And so Death and Bookman are standing out there. And Bookman has Death take him with him. And as they start to walk away, Bookman says, wait a minute. And he turns around and he goes back and he gets his trunk. And he says, you know, you never know what someone might need up there. And he says, it is up there, isn't it? And Death looks at him and says, yep, it's up there. You made it, Mr. Bookman. And they walk off into the night together as Serling's final narration closes out the episode. And for that, here's Will Lastly with the final narration. Lewis J. Bookman, age 60-ish, occupation pitchman. Formerly a fixture of the summer. Formerly a rather minor component to a hot July but throughout his life a man beloved by the children, and therefore a most important man. Couldn't happen, you say? Probably not in most places. But it did happen in the Twilight Zone. So let's get into the people that made this episode happen. Now, director Robert Parrish had never directed a TV show before. This was his first time directing a a TV show. He had done 12 movies prior to... The Twilight Zone being the first TV gig he ever got. And so he had to work with producer Buck Houghton on how to basically 
shoot 30 pages of dialogue in three days. He's only used to shooting, you know, five pages a day instead of, you know, 15. So Houghton helped him out on how to set up the camera angles and everything to be able to shoot in the time allotted. But he pulled it off and was actually hired for two more episodes, one being in this season and one being in a subsequent season. The one this season will be a stop at Willoughby, which, again, if you're a Twilight Zone fan, a stop at Willoughby is usually in people's top ten favorite episodes of the series. Um, But we will obviously discuss more about that when that episode comes up. So on to the cast. As Lou Bookman, we have Ed Wynn, who was born in 1886 and died in 1966. So he was 79 years old when he died, and he died seven years after this episode was aired. Now, Ed Wynn was an old-school comedian. Now, when I say old-school comedian, I'm talking about the vaudeville days and something that, if you're under the age of 70, you may not know what I'm talking about, the Ziegfeld Follies, uh, which were an elaborate stage show that had vaudeville acts and variety show acts that actually was performed on Broadway a lot. During this time, he also had a very popular radio show called Fire Chief that ran from 1939 to 1949. And then he had the Ed Wynn Show on TV, which ran from 1949 to 1950. So it lasted only, you know, one season, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad show. That just means that, you know, much like today, shows get canceled, whether they could be very popular or still get decent ratings and somehow still get canceled. At the behest of his son, he became a clown, sort of took on a clown persona, and it was actually a very popular thing. He wound up being one of the most famous clowns in clown history, if that's a thing. But many people loved him, and many people revered him. He is also famous from being the character Uncle Albert in the movie Mary Poppins, and also voicing the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland by Disney. Now we get to Murray Hamilton. Murray Hamilton was born in 1923, and he passed away in 1986, so he was 64 years old at the time of his passing. He was one of those people that you see, and you say to yourself, I've seen this guy before in many things, and you have, because he was one of the best character actors slash bit player actors that ever graced the screen much like Stephen Tobolowsky or Dick Miller those horror fans and fans of the gremlins know who I'm talking about Dick Miller also one of the greatest character actors that ever graced the screen Hamilton had bit parts in a lot of movies such as Anatomy of a Murder starring my wife's favorite actor Jimmy Stewart he was also in The Hustler with Paul Newman and The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. He had a bit part in the Amityville Horror, but most people know him as the mayor of Amity Island, where Jaws took place. That's right. He was from Amity Island. He was the mayor with that really, really, really sharp suit with all the anchors on it. Literally one of the best suits in cinematic history. 
and he was the guy that didn't want to close the beaches. And of course, Dana Dillaway, the little girl who played Maggie, uh, she didn't have too many credits to her IMDb page. Uh, it seemed like she was mostly a child actor, and then showed up a little later to do some more stuff, but then basically retired before the 80s. Not much in the way of trivia on this episode. Um, the story was written by Serling and was adapted for another TV show called Danger. And he basically reworked the teleplay he gave them about five years earlier and reworked it to fit around Ed Wynn being a sidewalk salesman trying to not uh, get taken by death. In the original story, it was about a salesman that tries to use his sales skills to stop his brother from being murdered by two hitmen. Also, uh, since Wynn was advancing in age, they decided to be nice to him and kind of not make him work at night, you know, due to his age. And so they adjusted to where they put tarps over the lights so that they could shoot during the day and still make it look like a nighttime shoot. Now, this effect has been used in several things. Um, one thing that comes to mind is the Andy Griffith show used it in several episodes. And I don't know if it's the Twilight Zone being better at it, better producers or what have you. But the effect never really worked on the Andy Griffith show. You could always kind of tell that it was still daytime when they were shooting, even though they tried to play it off clearly as nighttime. As far as goofs, there's really none to speak of on this episode. Uh, there's not really a whole lot of anything on this episode other than the episode and, and who put it together. So let's move on to what the Twilight Zone was trying to teach us, what Rod Serling maybe was trying to get across in this episode. And I kind of think that the, the moral or the philosophy of this episode was that you can't cheat death. And personally, I would kind of like to think it was somewhat of Serling sort of coming to a way of dealing with his own mortality. I mean, he was only 35 when this episode was made, but he was married and had children. And, you know, at 35, you're, you're starting to get middle-aged. And, you know, he saw a lot of death and a lot of dying when he was in World War II overseas. And I think maybe, just maybe... This was Serling's way of telling everyone that, you know, every man has his time and to use it wisely, to not squander it, and that maybe you should do the thing you want to do most in your life. Like for Bookman, it was making his pitch for the angels. And maybe Serling was trying to tell us that, that, you know, we only get so much time in this world and not to squander it and not to not do something that we want to do something that we might be very passionate in that we want to do before we go because we never know when Mr. Death is going to be standing there. Now, we'll see Death again in several episodes of The Twilight Zone and it's obviously a different character each time but each one seems to bring a different sort of morality or different sort of lesson to be learned and I think that's one of the best things about this TV series is it could take the same character and make each encounter with him a different sort of outcome. And that's one of the reasons why I really love The Twilight Zone, because it can take simple things and make them just out of this world and make them grandiose 
and really hit home, so to speak. Now, on to my likes and dislikes. What I liked about this was that it was a, a very simple story, but it had a predictable ending, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it was predictable but sweet. It kind of reminded me of the 1934 movie Death Takes a Holiday, which was remade into the movie Meet Joe Black with Brad Pitt in the 90s. My dislikes would basically have to be that I would have liked Death to have a bigger role. I really like Murray Hamilton as an actor, and I think that he was sort of underutilized in this. I would have liked to have had him have a little bit of a meteor role, like have to answer a bunch of questions that Bookman throws at him and, you know, explain things in a different way. I think that really could have solidified the story for me a little better. It wasn't a bad episode, but it wasn't one of the best either. It's it's a good middle-of-the-road episode to, uh, you know, just watch if you're wanting to do something else but kind of have a Twilight Zone sort of day. You could put that one on, but, you know, it's because it's one you don't really have to pay that much attention to. Now, if I were to cast this episode today, if uh, this episode were to be remade and it was my job as the casting director to put the right people in the right role, I would really like to see... Bo Bridges as Lou Bookman, or, and I'm going to say this, I think Danny DeVito would really, really, really sell that part. I think he would be phenomenal as Lou Bookman. And as far as casting Death, uh, I would go with one of two other really good character actors that haven't really gotten a lot of big-time roles, and that would be one choice would be either Frank Whaley, who was in several movies, uh, Career Opportunities with Jennifer Connelly from the 90s, or the movie Swimming with Sharks with Kevin Spacey, also from the 90s. Both really good movies, one despite the fact that Kevin Spacey was in the one. And Jimmy Simpson, who was in a few episodes of Psych, he was in it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, playing one of the McPoyle brothers. And he was also in last season of Westworld, if you watch that on HBO. So that wraps up this episode of Dimensions, a Twilight Zone podcast. I don't have any listener feedback because I really don't have that many listeners. When I do, I will definitely use this portion of the show to go into more of what all of the people listening to this might think or might have opinions on and I'm always open to hear any opinions any criticism any feedback you have whatsoever and if you would please email me at dimensions tz podcast at gmail.com and let me know what you think about this episode or last episode or what you feel like for the upcoming episode Mr. Denton on Doomsday a story about a drunk who handles a gun. So, sounds like a rootin' tootin' good time. Well, the uh, clock on the wall is telling me it's time to go, so I must sign off for now. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and I will see you next time.